If you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And while you're turning there, uh, just a little intro into this evening's message. You know, Paul had uh, introduced himself to the church at Rome after he had done that. He says in verse 13 that he had often planned to visit the church there to encourage them, but also to be encouraged by them. But it says he had been hindered thus far. And I think a little later in Romans, Paul gives us some insight into what that hindrance was. He says in Romans 15, 20 through 22, and uh, he says, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, and then quoting out of Isaiah, to whom he was announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. And for this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. So, you know, what was hindering Paul was his obedience. He was about the Great Commission, bringing that gospel message to those who hadn't heard it, taking it out to the nations, out to those that needed to hear the gospel. And Paul goes on there in Romans 1, 16 and 17, or I'll just say 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why did he say he was ashamed? You know, we've been talking about this in the open arms ministry, about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of men. And uh, the gospel message, that message of the cross, it was foolishness to the eye, in the eyes of worldly wise men. The thought of living through one who died, being blessed by one who was made a curse, being justified by one who himself was condemned. You know, those in Athens, you may remember, they scoffed and mocked at Paul's mention of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Rome had absolutely no appreciation for the Jews. They were nothing more than some small, insignificant nation that, na that Rome had conquered. And so much of the world, men blinded by their own pride, the gospel was a bunch of nonsense. And it was shameful that those who were caught up in their own prejudices, and they were, uh, it was laughable to those who were boasted in their humanistic reasoning and philosophies and such. As so we see that not much has changed, has it? You know? But Paul, he had a different take on the gospel. Not only was there power in the gospel, in verse 17 he says, therein, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. So God alone, we know, is inherently righteous. Mankind, we fall way short of God's standard of moral perfection. But in the gospel, there is that revelation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, uh, God will impute his righteousness to the sinner. And here in our verse for this evening, you know, Paul shows us something else that is revealed from heaven. It says, the wrath of God. I entitled this one, Does God Give Up? And uh, I think we'll just go through here and we'll see what we're talking about. And while we look at, look at this whole section from 18 to 32, we'll just take it for clarity's sake, just a few verses at a time. And just so you know, I kind of have a hankering for word studies. 
And so, you know, we're going to look at the context and nuances of a few words in today's message. Romans chapter 1, uh, 18 through 20, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the first thing we see put forth here is wrath of God. What's that look like? You know, when we think of, as humans, think of wrath, it typically involves being enraged you know, and taking vengeance due to some physical or emotional injury. This vengeful wrath, or thumus in the Greek, by the way, I, I usually pronounce these wrong, but we'll, we'll go with it, okay? Thumus in the Greek is a word that's used several times in Scripture, uh, mostly of men, but it's not the word that's used here. Over in the book of Revelation, on the other hand, which so clearly describes God's uh, ultimate judgment, the term thumus, uh, for his passionate anger is used quite often. But here in Romans 1, the ancient Greek word orge is used and is the most common word for God's anger uh, in, in wrath in the New Testament. God's anger, his wrath, his orge, uh, does not typically burn against sinners. So here in Romans 1, you know, we don't want to include anything like human passion here. You know, especially that of an outburst of anger for the purpose of revenge. You see, God is not injured by our sin. Hence, there's no motive for Thumas, that vengeful anger. This wrath, this orge, is probably best described by his divine displeasure or indignation against sin. It is, as we shall see, expressed not in an outburst of anger, but by his excluding the offenders, his excluding those who have rejected him from the favors and the graces which he so lovingly lavishes on his children, on those that he has declared righteous, and those who have received Jesus Christ into their lives as Lord and Savior. And next we see here, you know, the gospel, it didn't change God's attitude towards sin, but it did make possible for him to accept the sinner. The sinner must either have the righteousness of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ or the wrath of God uh, through his rejection of God. There's no middle ground there. And both are revealed from heaven, it says, just as God's righteousness was revealed through the gospel in verse 16 and 17, his wrath is also revealed from heaven against those who will reject him. And it is revealed against ungodliness, or that which is against God, that which denies the very character of God and disregards the very existence of God. So, and that is sin. It's also a commentary, again, on the world we live in today. You know, in the open arms ministry last week, we were talking about this when we were uh, talking about the wisdom of God and such. And uh, uh, it's, we were talking about the agnostic 
you know, those who have no opinion about God, and also the atheist who refuses to believe in God. And we noted there that the word agnostic in the Latin is the word ignoramus. Yeah. So why is it, you know, when you ask them about God, why does the uh, agnostic not declare, oh, no, I'm an ignoramus, you know. <laughs> just, just saying, you know. There are some arguments, though, as to whether that's true or not, but, <clears throat> you know, in the Greek it means without knowledge, so I'm good with it. So, all right. And God's word flatly contradicts the atheist, as we'll see in just a few verses. You know, his wrath, though, is revealed against ungodliness, that which is against God, and the unrighteousness, that which is against men. Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this word suppress here is kateko, uh, you know, and uh, also refers to a helmsman, if you will, you know, steering a boat against the current. And we see this in Acts, where Paul, you know, when he was on his way to Rome uh, during a storm, they were shipwrecked there. And in Acts 27:40, it says, "And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes." And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. And made there in the, is the same word that we have here as kateko. In other words, the current wants to take the boat in a uh, certain direction, but determined to go the other way, the helmsman holds or suppresses the rudder in such a way that he might go his way instead of the way of the current. And uh, the wrath of God, it says here, is revealed against those who are determined to go their own way, regardless of what they know to be true. And truth here isn't necessarily the gospel, because not all men possess a knowledge of the gospel. But they do possess a knowledge of God's existence, both internally as well as externally. And that should absolutely lead them to a place of seeking him out. You know, Paul here in Romans 19, uh, 1, 19, and he goes back and he says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And so we learn here that every human being has a sovereignly implanted internal witness from God, of God, plain and simple. You know, this internal witness is, destroys that atheist's argument of refusing to believe in God or a God. It's not that the atheists don't believe as they say, but according to God's word, the atheist won't believe. Ecclesiastes 3.11 kind of backs it up. He says here, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also put eternity in the hearts except that no man can find out the works of God that God does from beginning to end. And we can't, you know, look into the future. And we cannot grasp all the wonders and all the works of God. But because we were created in his image, you know, we do have a spiritual thirst. We do have a spiritual hunger that only God can truly satisfy. Amen. And every person, again, understands innately and intuitively that he is an eternal being. And while men say, you know, they may suppress that knowledge, instinctively he knows that there is more to life than meets the eye.
And again, that curiosity in and of itself uh, should drive men to seek him out. Okay, so there's that internal witness. But God's given us more. He's also given us that external witness of who he is. Verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, <clears throat> being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So creation, <clears throat> with which we are all exposed, I think. Is there anybody that's not exposed to creation here? No? no? Okay. That would be scary. But anyway, creation screams at us, not only of the existence of God, but it clearly shows forth his attributes, you know, his being omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal. But it also shows forth his divine nature, particularly that of his faithfulness and his kindness and his graciousness. You know, it's all clearly displayed through creation. And of course, Psalms 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, and night unto night reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That's pretty clear. You know, so much so that Paul adds that the suppression of these truths the rejection of that knowledge of God leaves men without any excuse on Judgment Day. In Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes, in Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 5, uh, and verse 13, it says, And you, talking to us, he says, He made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience and verse 3 says among whom also we so now Paul includes himself in there we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind or by nature children of what wrath just as the others but God we love that one don't we but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then down in 13, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, as we, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, at one time, we were the helmsman helmsmen there. We were holding, we were suppressing the rudder of our life, going our own way instead of his way. But he revealed himself to us and drew us to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's such good news because, you know, it's going to get pretty ugly through the rest of this chapter, you know, concerning those who have rejected him. And as I said, it was sobering because, you know, they're quite possibly, you know, family members and friends and co-workers and people we rub shoulders with on a daily basis that are going to be uh, listed here. Verse 21, it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
having just that knowledge of God, you know, that revelation that he in fact exists, should drop all of mankind to their knees in worship and in reverence. The revelation, the relationship would effectually restrain men from continuing in sin, from continuing in their unbelief. And yet what do we see here? We witness just the opposite happening. We see that that suppression of the knowledge of God where mankind began to steer against the knowledge of God, no longer pleased with who God is, in order desiring to acknowledge all of his wonderful gifts through creation. They feel no need to honor him, no need to glorify him. They are unwilling to thank him for his faithfulness, his gracious gifts, his goodness. They are basically left with only the appetites of their own bellies. They, in effect, alienate themselves from God and, you know, causing in themselves just a hardness of heart, which is, uh, you know, what we will see, you know, and as we will see, it initiates this downward spiral of moral, intellectual, and the spiritual deterioration, where they both, you know, become both futile in their minds and their foolish hearts are darkened meaning they become self-absorbed, unable to think intelligently. Their thoughts become perverse and destitute of wisdom or the application of knowledge. Sorry, am I, am I bringing you down here? <laughs> we'll keep going. It gets better, I promise. You know, these same futile and foolish thoughts directed towards science and philosophy make a belief in God unnecessary. You know, as an example, it would be the theory of evolution. Its total absurdity is one of the manures that fuels atheism. You know, the evolution is only plausible to that futile mind, the perverse mind, the foolish mind, the darkened heart. You know, it's a mind that, and heart that are in rebellion against God. Verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. So these with empty minds and darkened hearts, they make a profession to be wise, meaning they are like sounding the trumpet. Hey, we're wise, we're cultured, we're all learned, but in reality it says uh, they became fools. And fools here in the Greek is where we get our English word moron. So here's another one to add to your repertoire. You know. But up to this point, all this rebellion you know, it seems to have been happening between the ears. You know, it's in the mind and the heart of those who rejected the knowledge of God. They suppressed the knowledge of God. They refused to honor him. They refused to thank him, puffing themselves up in their own minds and hearts to the point where they think that they make God irrelevant and unnecessary. Now, as we shall see, you know, they're going to put feet to that unbelief begin to walk in their, own, in their rebellion. And what's the first thing that comes out of their rebellion? Idolatry. Verse 23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You know, first thing we, they walk in is idolatry, idolatry, which is really the epitome of irony here because uh, the glory of the incorruptible God. You know, it speaks first of his eternal, unchangeable nature. 
It also speaks of both that internal and external witness that he, you know, that they had from their creator, displaying his omnipotence, you know, all-powerful, his omniscience, he's being all-knowing, his omnipresence, being everywhere at once, you know, he can do that. All, also his faithfulness, his loving kindness, his graciousness, and we could go on and on and on describing the attributes and the character of God. But they took that incorruptible, unchangeable God, and because you can't change unchangeable, they had to settle for exchanging. They exchanged God for a corruptible image carved from a piece of wood or rock, but not just any piece of wood or rock. You know, This uh, would look first and foremost like themselves. You know, They would be their own God, small g, and then from there it kind of evolution, devolution. Yeah, they slither on down to where they're worshiping other creatures and those creeping things. And we can see how that word ignoramus and moron, they kind of fit the bill here, huh? And this is where the title of the message comes in. You know, it was, does God give up? You know, and we saw at the beginning of this message that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And here, uh, we are going to see an example of what that wrath sometimes looks like. Uh, verse 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And there's a couple of words here I wanted to look at. You know, the therefore, we always know what therefore is therefore. Um, but it always points in two directions. You know, therefore, it tells me to first look back and see what it's there for. And secondly, it points forward to therefore see what's coming. You know, and the other word here was also, because he said, God also gave them up. So the first, because of his, all the magnificent ways which our loving creator God has revealed himself to mankind and mankind's rejection of God and all of his goodness it says, therefore, God also gave them up. You see, God did not initiate this division. Men did. He is literally giving them over to their own depravity, uh, to uncleanliness, which is moral decay, lustful, luxurious, reckless living. And God never forces anyone into obedience. Verse 25 it says, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. And there was an amen there too. Yeah. The idolatry of sensual enslavement always leads to the idolatry of spiritual enslavement. Mankind, again, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And the lie, the lie is that a man can be his own God and should be worshiping and serving himself rather than his creator. And boy, we see a lot of that same lie being spread around today. It's the same lie that Satan used there in the garden to deceive Eve. You shall be his God. In verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, 
leaving the natural use of a woman burned in their lust for one another, committing men and with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. No explanation needed here. Blatant homosexuality. First and foremost, it's a sin against God and is a perversion of, you know, against nature as well as a sin against the other person. You know, and there is a shameful penalty, Paul says, to be received in the homosexual act itself. It was on to verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, again, God gave them over to a debased mind this time to do those things which are not fitting. And that debased mind is one that is not even able to think right thoughts, void of any appearance of correct thought or wisdom. A debased mind goes headlong into these next verses unrestrained. And pardon me while I read it. Verse 29 through 32, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know that the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, that they also approve of those who practice them. You probably thought I was reading from their evening news, huh? It's uncanny, you know, how accurate and relevant God's Word is. Uh, you know, and I don't want to stop at this point. It would kind of leave us hanging there with the thought that God gave people over to leave them there, you know, to rot in their sin and forever be separated from Him. Not our God. You know, in all of this ugliness, this rebellion, this rejection from his creation, his creatures, his desire is still for them. And they would, you know, that they would turn back to him, that they would call out to him you know, for salvation and the deliverance that he so freely offers through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as we see this beautifully portrayed here in Second Peter, and I want us to see, you know, the similarities between then and now, these last days that Peter's talking about, uh, which are the days we're living in. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, yeah, where's the promise of this coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Sound familiar? You know, just as in Romans 1, those who God had given over to their own sinful propensities, uh, these scoffers, you know, they're walking in their own lust, mocking God's faithfulness, mocking the promises of God found in his word, mocking creation itself, and willfully forgetting that there was and there is to be a day of judgment. You know, but God's good. And even here in these last days, while mankind is still rejecting the Lord, even as he is, uh, gives them over to themselves, he still, because of his love, he continues to call out to them. You know, so in answer to the question, does God give up? 
I suppose the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Even as he gives them over to themselves, he still, because of his love, he still continues to call out to them. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. You know, God's word to them, and you can really hear him pleading here, you know, repent. You know, he is saying, I long for you. I've been waiting for you. You know, it's not my will, it's not my desire for any of you to perish. That's what he's telling them. And in Sunday, on the Gospel of John, John said there in John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe uh, the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. You know, those who don't believe, who won't believe, those who have not received Jesus Christ into their life as uh, Lord and Savior, the wrath of God abides on them. It remains on them. And this is the same word over in Romans 1.18 uh, for wrath. It's orge. You know, and this is a good spot to go back and define that again. Orge, that divine displeasure or indignation against sin which abides on them, remains on them. Not in an outburst of anger, but by excluding the offenders, by excluding those who have rejected him from the favors and the graces which he lovingly lashes on, lavishes on to his children, and on those who have received Jesus Christ in their lives as Lord and Savior. And so, just like Paul earlier, you know, he was living that life of obedience to that great commission. We need to be about the Lord's business here and now. You know, when we read verses like Second Peter 3, 9, understanding that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If he's not willing that any should perish, you know, we need to have that same heart. We need to be, you know, bringing that good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ into all the situations and circumstances that the Lord sets before us. You know, God's word declares that there is power in the message of the cross. And there is power also in a testimony of how it changed your life and my life, how it changed our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul said, There I beseech you, and again I beg you, I plead with you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Yeah, I mean, how could we not present ourselves to him? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, we're to be all in here. <clears throat> you know, body, mind, will. And it says proving what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the only way to prove God is to walk in faith in the promises of God. You know, James, but be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. You've got to be a doer. And in an act, it is an act of obedience that proves not only to us, but also proves to those around us, believer and unbeliever alike, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. You know, his faithfulness to himself, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to us. 
And again, it's a testimony. And uh, we all have one of those, do we not? John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. As he said, you know, that's, boy, just the clearest gospel message there is. And you know that promise, that offer there, it's never been rescinded. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. You know, he's calling us into fellowship. And as far as I know, and I do, that one still stands also. So what do you think Jesus is talking about, or who do you think he was talking to in those verses? You know, it's those same individuals we've been talking about tonight. Those who up to this point rejected God's offer of salvation. They have not listened to his voice. And if you're here tonight and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior, you know, you need to do that. You need to come out from underneath that wrath, that living life your own way, and come into relationship with him. It's he who loves you. He who provided a way of salvation his way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am that way, that truth, that life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today is the day of salvation. They can call out to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, let's take these things and consider them uh, tonight, right now, and even this week. Lord, that uh, just the depth of your love for us, Lord, knowing that, <clears throat> Lord, before you drew us into relationship, we were that same people, Lord, under wrath. And we know there's so many that, uh, again, that we rub shoulders with family, friends, things like that, who are still there. They remain under that wrath, Lord. Lord, uh, give us opportunity. Give us courage in those things, Lord, that we can uh, speak your truth into that situation, and that circumstance. <clears throat> Lord, your word says that you put those good works before us, Lord, and uh, boy, we don't want to sidestep any of those, Lord. Give us courage to just step into those and proclaim your truth. Lord, we just pray for anyone here that might not know you, Lord, that uh, Lord, just uh, through this message, they would get a grasp of the depth of your love for them, Lord. And even with all the the uh, wrath, just understanding is just a place where people are at, Lord, a place that they remain in such, Lord, that they can call out to you. And, Lord, you're just right there, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, Lord. And so, Lord, help us with that, Lord. Uh, if there's anyone here tonight, Lord, I pray that they'd come up and, and speak with uh, maybe there'll be some prayer people up here, and uh, we can settle those issues. Lord, bless the rest of our evening. Lord, let our fellowship be rich, go before us. Lord, we thank you again for your word and the opportunity we have today, uh, tonight, just to fellowship out here and come in here and pray with each other and then open your word and, and just praise you through some songs, Lord. Bless the rest of our evening. Go before us. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen.